Welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Real-world insights for your daily medical coding and billing processes. And now, here's your host, Terry Fletcher. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CodeCast Podcast. Today, my name is Terry Fletcher. So I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving weekend and you got to spend time with family and friends and loved ones, or at least you just had a break. I know sometimes people just like the quiet. What did I do? Well, we actually went to some friend's house for Thanksgiving. There was about a dozen of us. We had a very nice Thanksgiving and I worked most of the weekend, but that's what I do. Actually, it gives me a calm when I have this quiet time when I know no one else is asking me for anything or saying I need this and I can actually just catch up. So uh, that's what makes me happy. I know I've got some fellow consultants out there that are just like, I got in my office and nobody was there. It was great. So this is the last Tuesday of the month, and that means it's Top 10 Tuesday. So I'm going to talk about some of the questions I've been getting, giving you about 10 of them um, that lead us into 2023 and just how to handle certain situations. So let's get it started right away. So as we go into the 2023 uh, calendar year, we know we're going to have some big updates for the ENM services. If you haven't heard that, then obviously you, you haven't been paying attention because we in 2021, they updated the office visits, the new and established patients, kind of got our feet wet into how to uh, level a service based only on time or uh, medical decision making. And now they are bringing every ENM into that fold. And so hospital visits, nursing visits, um, they're switching things up where they're combining uh, observation and inpatient codes, which I personally don't get because there's a different level of care there. And so it, will it, uh, you know, isn't it going to affect reimbursement, which I think it will. I didn't see anything that says that um, the place of service is going to make you get more money for inpatient versus outpatient observation. So we'll see how that all pans out beginning in 2023. But here's a question that I get a lot, and this will take this into 2023 as well. So it says, Terry, should I always have my physicians time their visit or should we have them use medical decision making? Well, one of the things that the AMA says, which is CPT, is they say that most code selections actually should be based on medical decision making. However, they realize that there's some instances where time is going to be really a factor, a dominating factor in the um, in the encounter. And so if that is the case, then you should use time to level your code. Now, what if you have a level four medical decision making, but you have a level five time, which is what I'm running into with my a lot of my providers and clients. Well, if I see a pattern where they're always hitting that minimum amount, 40 or 60 minutes, I bring it to their attention and say, look, we've got you know, um, most of your services that are coded as level fives because of time um, are actually level fours due to medical decision making, and that's going to get flagged. So at some point, that's going to be looked at as far as was that appropriate? And why did you need that long to talk to a moderate patient or have that conversation as far as time? The other thing they're going to look at, and this is the question I got, what should you use? Should you use time or medical decision making? But let's say you have a patient that you spent 25 minutes with, but it took another 40 minutes to arrange you know, follow up and, and coordination of care. Well, here's where you have to be very cautious. Okay. You don't have to have 50% or more, you know, spent counseling. You don't have to have that. We haven't had that in two years now, but it does include 
pre-visit time that you spend getting the chart ready, if it's done by the provider, not by the staff, if you're spending time reviewing a history, if you're spending time, obviously, inter, uh, they call it inter-service time with the patient, documenting. But I expect documentation would be going as you as you're, um, in, as you go with the encounter with the patient, where you're not basically spending time with the patient and then leaving the room and doing your documentation separately. Maybe a tiny bit, but not not a, a separate uh, service, if you will. And then as long as, again, the provider is doing some care coordination, maybe they need to call another um, referring source or another specialist or something, then all of that can be included in that time. Where it starts to fall off the rails is if you count the staff time, if they took the history, you can't count that. Can you count the time you spent reviewing the history? Yes. So if staff's taking 10 minutes to help with the history, but you spend only two minutes reviewing the history, you only get the two minutes. And so you cannot use staff time when it comes to timing your visit. And you have to also realize that if somebody's auditing it, just like I would, I'm going to expect that some of that documentation time into the electronic medical record is going to be done in the room with the patient when you are seeing the patient face to face. And so you can't double dip there. I've seen some practices or some providers try to do that, and that would be incorrect. So please don't do that. Another question that I've gotten uh, recently is, uh, what can we bill for pre-op services? Boy, talk about a blast from the past. So this has been something that has been going on for, for quite a while um, when it comes to pre-ops. So there's a difference between, um, there. I should say there's a difference of opinion if, and I'm air quoting, if pre-op should be billed or not. So technically the rules say that if it occurs the day of or the day um, before, a global service, meaning 90-day global procedure, then it's not covered. It's part of that service. But, and, and Medicare only pays if the pre-op is medically necessary and not to rehash the risks that were already discussed at the decision for surgery visit. So if you see, if you do a pre-op that's done by the surgeon that's also going to do the surgery, you're going to see a lot of denials because they're saying this, this is just to hand them forms, give them home health, you know, give them their prescriptions. That's not billable. That's, that's what you get paid for with all of the, the value of a global service. What a pre-op is, and this is why a lot of patients see their primary care doctor for a pre-op or the cardiologist, is that is a clearance for surgery. So you've got a patient that is on Coumadin or you have a patient that um, is on high-risk medication that needs to be adjusted prior to surgery, or they need to make sure that their heart can tolerate um, an, an open surgery or that, you know, if they have any high risk factors, you know, that they're concerned with. Those are our preoperative evaluations or again, pre-op clearances that are billable because they need a medical clearance or a medical evaluation before they can be cleared. You've got patients who are COPD, you know, how are they going to react to certain anesthesia? So those are medically necessary evaluations and those are, are billable, but just be careful because if you're trying to bill for a pre-op by the surgeon who's going to do the surgery, what's, what is, what is that physician evaluating that's different than the routine giving, you know, patients the, the surgery instructions. And so, you know, that's, that's number two today when we talk about uh, our top 10 Tuesday, that's our number two question you get. So can you, maybe it just depends on the situation for that encounter. 
My number three one has to do with the cardiology specialty. Uh, They said, Terry, we're reading this report and we're noticing that the physician is trying to charge for a heart cath 93458 service with a 26 modifier, but they did not inject into the left ventricle. Can we still charge for it since the uh, code description says with or without left ventriculography? Well, remember it says with or without. The reason it says that is what you're looking for is did the physician what we call cross over the aortic valve? Did they go into the heart? And they when they go into the heart, they're actually looking to measure pressures for patients hemodynamic status. So can they tolerate the procedure without bottoming out pretty much? And what are you looking for? You're looking for something called LVEDP. So you are looking to see if their pressures, so left ventricular and diastolic pressures were obtained, and you don't have to inject into the left ventricle to be able to see that. So if you see pressures measured, and again, LVEDP, then you can still have that 93458. If they did not go into the heart, so you just see a coronary injection, then that's 93454 with a 26 modifier, as long as it's diagnostic and not to just set up for um, the stenting or the intervention. Question number four has to do with the public health emergency. Was it extended? So what was it? It was extended in October for 90 days, which means it is now effective until January 11th, 2023. We were supposed to have an announcement by November 11th um, to decide if they were going to give us that 60 day notice to end it in um, January. Now, because of midterm elections and the politics around the public health emergency and what that means as far as funding, we did not get that announcement. However, there was a House resolution that passed in the Senate, overwhelmingly, by the way, bipartisan. And so it said to end the PHE, but they didn't give a date. I don't know if it's at the end of the next one or meaning the January, or if it means to end it by the end of the year, we don't know yet. It has to still get a vote on by the house. So just know right now, plan on the January date being the last date. Do I think it'll get extended one more time? Probably, but as of right now, it's just extended till January 11th, 2023. Question number five actually is a telehealth question. And the question was, so Terry, I have a patient that is in Florida and our practice is in New York. Uh, Can we have our provider see that patient in Florida since the snowbirds are now um, going out to their, you know, their uh, sunny retreats? Well, the question is, unless your physician is licensed in Florida where the patient's going, they cannot see the patient across state lines anymore. In um, June of 2021, that waiver expired in um, 80% of the states, but in Florida specifically, they actually have it posted on their website as you come into the state that says your physician has to be licensed there to be able to treat that patient there via any kind of medicine, telehealth, anything. So make sure you check with that state policy, not just your state, but the state where the patient's in, because most states, 80% have rolled back those um, those waivers saying that the physician absolutely has to be um, licensed in that state to practice where the patient is. Number six, Terry, our patients want to pay with uh, cash apps. Is that okay? Well, yes and no. So do your patients want to pay with Zelle or they want to pay with Venmo or PayPal? So they can pay with that, but for example, Venmo or Cash App, 
One of the things that these apps encourage are patients to, or I should say users, to let everybody know what they're using to pay their bills with or to transfer money back and forth, etc. And so make sure that um, they know that that's public information unless they choose the private uh, tab. So I know if I'm, you know, sending money to somebody that I don't want anybody else to know about, uh, just because it's, you know, it's my business, it's private, um, then I have to pick private. If it's public, then it goes to everybody who is either in my phone or is on the app that I happen to know. And it's just crazy, this things I see that I'm like, why is that person spending that kind of money? Gets my daughter into trouble. So just letting you know, make sure your patients know that if let's say that you're, you're an orthopedic practice and they pay for an orthotic um, with Venmo or a support, they're going to also start getting all kinds of advertisements on their phone, on their Venmo account, probably through their email as well, because that information is also passed along um, for those services. And then everybody will know that they're seeing an orthopedic physician. So just make sure that that's very clear um, when it comes to uh, exposure. Question number seven. So uh, there, there's a question on shared and split visits, and that seems like an ongoing conversation. So let's say that your nurse practitioner and your physician are sharing or splitting a visit in the hospital setting, because remember, you can't do it in the office. And the physician did the entire medical decision making in person, um, the substan they call it the substantive portion or in its entirety, um, then they can bill for that split or shared visit. But irrespective of who the provider is, you have to put an FS. So F is in Frank, S is in Sam modifier to reflect that it's a split or shared visit if you're billing Medicare. So it's a requirement. It's not just for the mid-level provider. So make sure that is put on um, those, those services because they're tracking them to make sure that it's billed appropriately. Uh, what about the prolonged service codes, Terry? I have a question. Somebody said that Medicare and CPT do not agree. They don't. So there's a 99417 code, which is an add-on um, prolonged service service code. And then there's a G2212, which is an add-on prolonged service for Medicare. Remember, anytime Medicare doesn't agree with CPT, they just create their own code. Well, CPT says that you can start... 15 minutes after the first minute of the minute, the minimum time um, to be able to add that code. And Medicare, correctly, in my opinion, says, no, it's 15 minutes after you've hit the maximum time threshold, which to me makes sense. The other one doesn't even make common sense to me. Why have a threshold of time from and to and a level five and not have to hit the, the maximum before you can kick in and add another uh, 15 minutes to it makes absolutely no sense. So in my opinion, regardless of what code you use, if you want to best practices, you wait to the maximum time. But if you're going to do it per payer, that's up to you. If you want to take that risk, I wouldn't do it. But CPT says 15 minutes after the first minute of minimum time, but Medicare says 15 minutes starting after the maximum time threshold is met on level five visits. So you would really have to document how much time you spent. And then that remember that that level five visit would have had to be time-based. So you can't add it to a medical decision-making visit because you don't have that extra time threshold. So you would have to really have a long, long visit that day and, and it would be looked at. So I know that prolonged service has always been something that was pretty audited pretty easily. And so they're still looking at that to see if you're really spending that kind of time with the patient. Number eight. Number eight is for the gastro 
specialty coders out there. So I have a patient where the physician did a colonoscopy and they removed a lesion. And then um, they also did tattooing or an injection of ink to lift the lesion. How do I bill for that? Okay, well, first you need to know how they actually removed the polyp or the lesion. If they did it by snare or if they did it by, um, that would be 45385. If they did it by um, hot biopsy forceps, then you would have 45384. If they did it through ablation, then which is not really removing, but it's ablating that polyp, that would be 45388. So you have to have a base code first on how they removed it. If it was a biopsy, 45380. If it is the tattooing or what we like to call a submucosal injection, then that is an add-on, or it's not an add-on code, it's an, it's an extra CPT code for 45381, and that is um, also needs a 51 modifier, not a 59, if it's the same lesion that they're lifting, because what that dye does is it kind of highlights that lesion that they can't really see because it's too flat against the colon wall. And you're, you are allowed to bill for it. It's not bundled, but that's why you use the 51 and not the 59 because there's not a bundling edit for that one. So no, that's just a little change, uh, probably what you're used to in GI coding. Number nine for our ortho coders out there. So Terry, my provider did a, an arthroscopic rotator cuff repair and then also did an arthroscopic distal clavicle resection. And I'm finding that the 59 modifier isn't working. Okay, so this is where you have to look to your direction and your parenthetical directions as well in CPT. And right underneath the code for rotator cuff repair arthroscopically, 29827, in parentheses it says, when arthroscopic distal clavicle resection is performed at the same setting, use 29824 and append the modifier 51. That couldn't be any clearer. So you would use 29827, 29824, 51 modifier. And then if you get a denial still, because they weren't recognizing the 59 because it wasn't appropriate, now you have a way to appeal. Basically, you say, according to CPT 2022, uh, to page 213, the right column, and you, you know, send them a copy of it, you've now given them chapter verse of a direction encoding on how to provide that service. And that's always helpful when you do that. And number 10, and I think this is a really big one, Terry, we're having a problem with advanced care planning. We just got an audit request from Medicare and we're not sure why. Uh, we were getting paid with no problem when we were billing for these for patients every visit. Oh my goodness. And so why are we getting this request now? Okay, so last week the OIG posted that they felt that there was $42 million in advanced care planning that was paid incorrectly to Medicare uh, providers. The reason is, first of all, these are time-based codes. So you have to have at least 30 minutes of face-to-face -face time with a patient, family, and sur or surrogate caregivers on these advanced directives. So you don't necessarily have to complete the, the legal forms, but there has to be evidence within the patient record that you're talking to these patients and their family members about the, the advanced directives. And that's documents appointing an agent or recording the wishes of a patient pertaining to their medical treatment at a future time, should they uh, lack that medical capacity um, or for that decisional capacity to determine what they need. Um, you may fill out their forms, so it could be a healthcare proxy, it could be, you know, durable power of attorney for healthcare. Remember, that's different than just a regular power of attorney. You have to have one for healthcare as well. Could be a living will, could be 
the MOLST form, which is the medical orders for life-sustaining treatment, even just going over this for 30 minutes, not any less, and you have to make sure that that's in the documentation, um, would be the 99497. Where the problem lies, and I could, you could probably hear it in the question that was asked to me, is why do you need that every visit? You That has to be patient-initiated. Patient's going to have a copay and a deductible for that. Um, so you have to make sure that the patient understands that this is something they're asking for. You're going to charge for it. It's not a free discussion, and they may have an out-of-pocket. And so this is where it gets a, it gets pretty tricky for the patient, where they're probably thinking, I just need your advice on what I should do when actually this is a, a time based code that your physician needs to talk to a patient who probably is, you know, has decompensated renal failure, um, congestive heart failure. And I would say within the next 24 months as looking at potential demise, and I'm not trying to be flip or anything. I'm just saying from an administrative perspective, that's what you're looking at. You've got generally healthy patients who maybe they might have chronic conditions, but are well managed and well controlled. These are not services for those patients. In my opinion, I see practices saying, well, it doesn't say that. Well, use common sense. Why would you start talking to a patient about planning for their death and what to happen, you know, when they get incapacitated, if they're not even close to being there yet? Think about a grandparent you might have that basically is in really good health, is, you know, sharp as a tack, and they might have hypertension, but they're well controlled. They're, you know, 65, 70 years old, and you're going to have a physician start talking to them about, okay, so let's start planning for when, you know, you have Alzheimer's, when you're, you know, when what you want done, if, if you basically can't do, you know, do for yourself. That's a fine conversation, but not for somebody who's healthy, in my opinion. You've got a 45-year-old patient, and they're, you know, and somebody saying, oh, well, we bill for this all the time. Why? So remember, services have to be medically indicated. And there are definitely times for that discussion. Perfect example. I was in a uh, shadowing a physician to make sure they were capturing all their services. And he was talking to two patients who were pretty, pretty long in age. So one, I think was 92, one was 94. And they both walked with walkers, one had their oxygen tank on. And so, you know, otherwise healthy, but they were just older. And so they were both talking to the physician and the physician said something to the effect that, okay, so you both, you want to be cremated. You've talked to me about this and I just have it here in your charge. Just to make sure that we're up to date. And the wife's like, no, I don't want that. And I want every measure taken. I want to live till I'm, you know, 150. And the, and the, um, her husband was like, yeah, when I'm done, I'm done. Uh, you know, and it was just like listening to these two talk about this and not being on the same page was interesting. So, that was a conversation that they need to have with both patients. And they ended up, you know, filling out some forms, helping them write something up, and they call it refrigerator papers. So most patients now that are in their, you know, 80s, 90s, 100, whatever, they they have refrigerator magnets. Some of us don't, but they might. And uh, they put their papers there. So if the ambulance does come and, and they have their name on it, there's no question. And so um, just know that that's the kind of conversation that's paid for. Now, the patient comes back in the second time. If there's questions that the physician, or I'm sorry, the patient 
is initiating because they have other questions, then absolutely you might be able to charge again for it if you spend that 30 minutes. But if you don't spend 30 minutes and it's a quick, you know, five, 10 minute conversation, then that's part of your ENM service. So try not to get too excited about some of these extra services that you're able to charge for if you're not meeting the criteria for those services. You know, care management has me going crazy sometimes when I see what people are trying to charge when it's not appropriate. Okay, everyone. So I hope everyone had, again, a great weekend and you're back to work, ready to tackle what we have left of the 2022 year. I actually spent uh, Saturday going over my entire CPT book, tapping it up, um, getting my highlights in there, transferring some notes from my previous CPT book for 2022 into 23. And I just feel so accomplished. So and now I'm updating my, my books and my webinars and all that. So which reminds me, take a look at my website at terryfletcher.net. I've got a ton of on-demand webinars that I just recorded if you're interested, including the 2023 ENM, and then also my specialty coding um, references are up, which are workbooks. So if you're interested in those, take a look and uh, appreciate your business. Okay, everyone, make it a great day, a great rest of your week, and we will talk to you in December on the CodeCast podcast. For more information on medical coding, billing, auditing, and compliance, including how to hire Terry, follow Terry on Twitter at TerryCoder1 or visit her website at www.terryfletcher.net. Podcast producer Joe Kuzma, music producer Assassin Music. <laughs>